Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Two things as we begin. First of all, Pastor Carell and I are going to go up to Indianapolis to be with our sister church up in Indy. Um, Clearnote Church Indy which is pastored by Joseph, my son, and David Abusara. And uh, they're going to have a congregational meeting today, right? And so David and I are going to go up there, and I encourage you to remember we have a church up there. It meets where that weird globe of the world is, right off of 465 in the northeast corner, or west corner, Kiwanis International, that's where they meet, so... Anybody that lives in that quadrant of Indianapolis, inside or outside the Beltway, send them to church there, and they'll have good care from the shepherds there. That's Clearnote Church, Blooming, or Indy. And then also, I want you all, when you leave, on your right is a table with a bunch of these. Make sure that you give them to people this week, so that we can have a bunch of people who come and who hear the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, what is the good news about Jesus Christ? Well, this is Christmas season, and this particular part of the Christmas season is known as Advent. And Advent means coming, arrival. And the advent of the important moment or the important thing. I'm going to be doing this all during the service, so get used to it. Um, And so Advent is a season where we anticipate the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now, it is true that we live in the season of Advent now because we await the second coming of Jesus. And so there's a statement, Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. And this is referring to the time when Jesus will return as the Lord of the earth. Remember when he left to go back up to heaven, he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples. And then when in the book, in the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples were told that he will come again. Well, when he comes again, he's not going to be hidden from the proud. The first time Jesus was hidden from the proud. Does that make sense to you? Because he was, he was born in a, in a stable, he was born to the poor, Mary and Joseph were very poor, uh, the angels didn't announce him to Jerusalem, you know, Indy or Bloomington, but it was to a bunch of truck drivers at the truck stop up maybe by uh, Brazil, you know what I'm saying? The angels announced him to the shepherds. He was hidden from the proud and the rich the first time he came. But the second time he comes, there will be a shout and the voice of the archangel, the trumpets will blare, and he will come in power. And all mankind will see him the second time. So we live in a period anticipating his second coming, when all the rich, all the proud will know that the judge is returned. But we're celebrating his first coming when he revealed himself and came to the humble of heart, okay? 
And so that's what we're doing this morning is we're looking at how Jesus was the savior of sinners in the way that he came 2,000 years ago. Uh, And uh, Christmas Eve will celebrate what happened that night in Bethlehem. But what we're looking at this morning is some of the prophecies in the Old Testament that we're pointing forward to. And what you need to do is you need to sort of look at the Bible as being the Old Testament is this huge amount of pages, number of pages, pointing forward to the coming of Christ. And the New Testament is a smaller number of pages pointing back to the coming of Christ. All right? So the Old Testament's pointing forward. The New Testament is pointing back. All right? And so we're going to go to the book of Isaiah this morning and see how Isaiah the prophet pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll read verses 1 to 11. And as you're turning there, remember, this is the prophet pointing forward to Jesus, but prophets were preachers. That's what they were. And so the prophets always had something that men who talk loudly in restaurants and use big words refer to as sitzimleben. If Jürgen was here, uh, he would explain what that means. You have to find the sweet spot in between constant irritation and just... And that's a hard sweet spot to find. Prophets had a sitzimleben. Prophets, that's just a fancy German word that means context. Prophets had a particular time, a particular place, and a particular people that they were speaking to. And so when we look at the the sections like this in Isaiah, we go, yeah, Handel's Messiah. You know, if you've grown up on the Messiah like I have. And we get all cosmic about it, but I want you to remember that this particular passage of Scripture is pointing forward to Jesus, but it's being written in a particular time to a particular people in a particular place. All right, let's stand for the reading of the Word of God. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. And call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain in the rugged terrain, a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain. O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up. Do not fear. 
Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we pray this morning that it will go out in power, that your sinful servant Tim Bailey will not be timid and will not refuse to climb the mountain or to yell, and that because of this, your spirit will find him a useful vessel and souls this morning here will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, here we have a prophecy. It's from the prophet Isaiah. And you remember that I said that when you think of prophets, you need to think of preachers. They were God's voices. All right? They spoke the word of God. Another thing you need to realize is that in the Old Testament, when you read of Zion or when you read of Jerusalem, so for instance in verse 9, O Zion, bearer of good news, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, you remember that the word gospel, gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, gospel means good news, all right? And so here it says, Zion is a bearer of good news. It says, Jerusalem is a bearer of good news. So Zion and Jerusalem are announcers of good news, bearers of good news, voices of good news, speakers, preachers of good news. But when you see in the Old Testament, Zion and Jerusalem, you should always think what? Well, you think Jews, you think the people of God, you think God's chosen people. But what you should think is the church. Because in the Old Testament, the Jews were the church. And so Zion is the place of the people of God worshiping. Jerusalem is the city of the people of God. So in the Old Testament... Jerusalem and Zion, you should just think the church. In the New Testament, that's why the Apostle Paul in Galatians says that Jerusalem is what? Our mother. And so what we realize is that both Zion and Jerusalem are the people of God, the church. Don't get all individualistic and and, and narcissistic on me here. Okay, you should all know Uh, make sure they know the word narcissism and narcissistic. Okay, Jason? Uh, Narcissism is, he's the Greek guy that would look down in the pond and the water was perfectly still and he'd look down at that water and he'd just love what he saw. Because what did he see? He saw his face, his ugly mug. But it's beautiful to him, right? 
You know the expression, he's got a face that only a mother could love? Men today don't even need their mothers. All they need is a mirror. And by the way, parents, can I just say something to you? This is just uh, volunteer corn, all right? If you see your children looking in a mirror, would you slap them? Just, just slap them. Because our world is so vain today. And a good indication that your children are vain is that they're looking in a mirror. And if you think that I wouldn't do this, I don't mean, well, if it's a boy, you might really slap him. But what I did was I saw Hannah standing in front of the mirror one day. And I had this bell that went off in my brain, danger, danger. And so I said, Hannah, don't look in the mirror. And poor Hannah, she was innocent. She just was looking in a mirror. They said, it'll make you vain and proud, so don't look in a mirror. All right? So narcissism today is what you and I all live in the midst of. We're all looking in the mirror. You know what the mirror is called, right? Facebook. Where I'll look at your mirror if you'll look at mine more. Okay? And so we're all looking in the mirror, and when we read Zion, what we think is me. We individualize it because all of us are individuals, you know? And so we ruin God's church because we just think that God wants to have a relationship just with us as individuals, and the church doesn't matter. But I want you to notice it's the church that's given the good news here. It's Zion. It's Jerusalem. It's the city. It is the church. It is the corporate assembly of the people of God. All right? And listen, in, 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 among the people of God, you matter as long as you have that order right, which is that the church is much more important than you are. It doesn't mean you aren't important. God can keep track of every hair on your head. But you need to be humble and love the church. All right. And so comfort, oh comfort, my people. And so my people, Zion and Jerusalem, they're all the same thing. And now it's the church. Comfort, oh comfort, my people. Now at the time, the Jews, the people of God, were going into captivity under Babylon. And so God's saying to the prophet, say to my people, say to the church, be comforted. Be comforted. And notice that the repetition of comfort, oh comfort, is not so that Handel can do a better job of doing the Messiah. You know, you get so you listen to these songs and you think, well, yeah, comfort, oh comfort, 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 because in songs they repeat stuff a lot, a lot, a lot. Well, here it's repeated not because we need filler material to match the tune. It's repeated because why? Well, you could argue that it's repeated because the prophet doesn't want to comfort the people, and so God is saying it twice to the prophet to make him do his job. But now it's repeated because many of you refuse to be comforted. Comfort. Comfort. Now, why would somebody refuse to be comforted by God? Why would somebody who's a part of the church refuse to be comforted? 
It must be a difficult job if it's saying comfort, oh comfort. All right, I'll just leave that one sitting there for a while. And then speak kindly to Jerusalem. Again, who's Jerusalem? Don't say me, say what? Yeah, or it's all of us, right? All of us who believe in Jesus. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says who's God? Your God. Isn't that sweet? That's a comfort. Comfort, oh comfort, your God. He says it to you. Comfort, oh comfort. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Speak kindly to my people. Now, what does speak kindly mean? Well, speak kindly means what? It means speak kindly. We all know what speak kindly is, right? It's our mother. It's not our dad. Or some of us, it's our dad, not our mother. (laughs) You know? Gently, sweetly, kindly, speak kindly. So here is God's approach to his people. Comfort, comfort. Your God, speak kindly to you. All right? And call out to her. Notice it's not whisper, it's not share. But it's call out, call out, call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, remember I used that big construction called Sitzimlaven, and I said it meant context, So Isaiah is speaking to the people of God at a time when they are and have been suffering. And he is saying it's time for comfort, right? It's time for comfort. Comfort, comfort, says your God. Now why do they need to be comforted? They need to be comforted because they've been suffering. Why have they been suffering? Now this is really, really nasty to say this. But if you look at what the Bible says, it says her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her what? Sins. If you have had an abortion and you're a woman and you've paid a doctor to murder your unborn child, do you believe that you suffer for your sins? Do you believe that you suffer for your sins? If you're a man and you've committed adultery against your wife, do you believe that you suffer for your sins? If you're the church and you have gone whoring after the gods of America, do you believe that the church suffers for her sins? Do you believe that suffering is a tool that God uses with his precious people as payment for their sins. You'd say, well, no, Jesus paid it all. Yes, Jesus did pay it all. But that does not mean that God does not discipline his people. Because it says in Hebrews 12 that he disciplines all those he calls sons. 
And so what we see here is that the people to be comforted are the people who God has punished, who have suffered because of his punishment. All right? And listen, if you claim to be a Christian and you don't have suffering in your life, what that means is that God is not treating you as a son. And that should cause you to be very concerned. All of us should be looking for ways that we're suffering for our sins so that we can take joy in it. And you go, what? And I say, oh, come on. You've all had fathers. And you say, well, actually not. I say, oh, yeah, you have. You've had elders and pastors and school teachers and and coaches, right? You've all had fathers, and they disciplined you, right? And you knew you belonged to them when they disciplined you. I mean, isn't that the theme of every sports movie? There comes a moment where the coach marks his team with his fatherhood. Any of you ever watch Hoosiers? And what's the theme? Well, the theme is that the coach is, a, is more of a father than the father, right? And so what the Bible is saying here is that the people of God, the church, have suffered for their sins and that now it's time to be comforted. And it's their God, your God, says this. All right? That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, that's not saying that she's received a disproportionate amount of suffering for her sins. Double? Well, that's not fair. You know, you can just see every American, you know. Double? No! You know, come on. Come on. Let's, let's, let's make this proportionate to my sin. I remember a, a professor at Penn State University sitting at a table with me here in this community and saying to me that he had, been the, he had been the head of InterVarsity here, and a wonderful Christian witness on the campus of IU, and he said to me that, uh, that he, was, he was done with God, and he was done with God because his divorce had been so painful that God could not be good and allow that kind of pain in any man's life. And listen, I'm just going to tell you, None of us have any comprehension of the wickedness of our sin. There's nothing that anybody has ever suffered that is disproportionate to their sin. That's not what it means when it says double for all our sin. What it means is that God has been intense in dealing with us as children and giving us discipline and suffering. It's been very intense. Verse 3, a voice is calling. Notice again. Verse 2, call out to her. Verse 3, a voice is calling. Again, loudly. It's not whispering and it's not sharing. It's calling. And what is the voice calling? Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now notice those two words, wilderness and desert. What is it referring to? It's referring to the time of Israel suffering under the discipline of God. Why were they suffering? Because they'd given themselves to idolatry. They'd loved money. They'd loved little bales. They'd loved uh, women, Canaanite women. They'd given themselves idols. All right? 
And so what God is saying here in this verse is, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Wilderness and desert are those places where they suffered. Now, it's impossible for us to understand that. Why? Well, because wilderness, well, well, are you a member of REI? You know, Mountain Hardware? You know? In other words, wilderness today is the ultimate place to be. The ultimate. Why? Well, because outside of the wilderness, you get anthropogenic global warming. (laughs) And what does anthropogenic mean? Well, not the same thing as Sitzenleben. (laughs) Anthropogenic means that it had its origin in man, anthro. All right? And so anthropogenic global warming means that if we could just get rid of man, the world would be perfect. And that's the subtext of the Western world today. Man is the problem, wilderness is the solution. And so wilderness has become the the summa of moral purity in the Western world today. And if you can get out into the wilderness, then you will be really godly and really happy and like there will be like cosmic wows that will come upon you. If you have the right coat, shoes, actually much more important than shoes is socks, let me tell you. All right, water bottle, well, no, you don't have a water bottle in the wilderness, what do you have? You have a bladder, I mean, not mine, the, you know. Got to have a backpack, you have to have the tent, what? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and then you have to have, you can't have a Seveo 123 anymore, because if you're flying there, they won't let it on the airplane, so all your Seveos are done unless you drive to your wilderness. You don't know what a Seveo 123 is, you haven't lived. And then you go and you meet God. Because why? Well, because you're nowhere around man. But in Scripture, wilderness and desert are negative. Why? Because man is the apex, the summa, the top of creation. It's the teaching of Scripture. That's why it's completely trashed today in the Western world. I'm not saying I don't like the wilderness. I just think it's cosmically osh. You know, it like makes chills go up and down your spine to be in the wilderness because you're close to God. But in Scripture, you're close to God when? That time every week when you gather with the people of God and you remember that their feet are on a slippery slope and the people of God worship, okay? And so Zion and Jerusalem are really heaven on earth. And wilderness and desert are the places where they need good news because it's such a parched land. 
Isn't that weird? You got to get that in your brain if you're going to understand the use of wilderness and desert in Scripture. It's the exact opposite of what we do. Pretty much every single time that you hear any truth in our world, the real truth is the exact opposite of whatever you hear. Okay? Because we live in a day when right is wrong and wrong is right. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, what's the purpose of a highway? The purpose of a highway is to make it easy to travel. You have a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity right now to go out south of here and to look at a highway being constructed. I go out there and I sit and I just look at it. I think it's just wonderful. And what are they doing? Well, they're, they're removing the tops of the hills and they're filling in the valleys. And that's what John the Baptist did, didn't he? He preached, and his preaching took the top of the hills off, and his preaching filled up the valleys. Now, what does it mean to fill up the valleys? What it means to fill up the valleys is to take the timid and the weak and to lift them up. To lift them up. To comfort the afflicted. Why? Because we need a highway for God. People have to have faith that he's good, that he says comfort, that he's your God. But what about the mountains? Well, you got to just cut them down. Well, who are the mountains? Well, the mountains are the souls that are tenured professors at the university, filled with pride, or people getting MBAs. And I suppose people getting performance degrees instead of music education degrees. Definitely, all right? I don't know what your study is, so you're safe right now, okay? Yeah, you. (laughs) Listen, it's those of us who are proud who have to be, why? Because you can't hear God calling you to repentance and faith if you're proud. So Americans have to be leveled because America is the land of the proud, all right? So... The low valleys need to be filled in. The mountains need to be cut off. And then if you listen to the Messiah, the crooked straight, the rough made smooth. Now, what would the crooked be? The crooked are people who are unbelievably uh, perverse. They're people that after the elders work with them for five years, the elders want to shoot themselves because it doesn't seem that anything has happened. They've rebuked, they've admonished, they've encouraged, they've loved, they've had them over for dinner, they've talked to their wives, they've talked to their children, they've talked to their parents, they've gone to 12 stones with them, they've done absolutely everything they can. And you just want to be done with them. And it's so sweet that Scripture says that the crooked will be made straight. Yeah? In other words, the crooked belong just as much as the timid and just as much as the proud. All three are the same sin. The crooked, the depressed, and the arrogant. They all belong in the people of God, and God will deal with each of them. And they all belong, right? You see that. 
Okay. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Why? Because they've all been dealt with by God. The road has been prepared. And then God will reveal his glory. And all flesh will see it. Why? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And he answered, what shall I call out? Notice that the prophet doesn't just start blabbing. He's told to speak. And his response is to say, what shall I speak? Just because somebody's blabbing in the name of God doesn't mean that he has any message from God. It's a theme all through the Old Testament of the false prophets. They say, God said this to me, and God hasn't said anything to him. It's just so obvious our country is filled with men who didn't stop to say, what shall I cry out? They just cry out of their own sort of emotive kind of experiential kind of sense of what is religiously, you know, just. But here we see that the response when God says, cry out, call out, he answers, what shall I call out? And that's the mark of a faithful preacher, a faithful prophet, is that they stop and they say to God, what shall I say? All right. And he answered, all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. What you want to realize about this is that if you're grass, you don't have any special gifts that stand out. You're just a normal Joe. Or you're a professor or a preacher or somebody whose gifts are visible. All you are then is a flower. And both grass and flower wither and die. Right? And we've seen this happen this fall. And why does the grass wither and why does the flower die? Because God's breath brings it to death. God is intolerant of the pride of all of us. He just won't have it. And so the grass and the flower are supposed to show us that no man lives forever. All of us die and that God is in control of our death and our decline. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so what is it that stands forever? Your hair? Your shoulders? Your logic? Your clinical ability? Your command of your boat? Your awesome creativity? That's you, Nathan. No, there's only one thing that lasts forever, and that's the word of God. Now, you need to be told that because of what comes next. Here's what comes next. Get yourself up on a high mountain. Oh, Zion. Who's Zion? So the church is being told to get up on a high mountain. Bearer of good news... Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem. Who's Jerusalem? Church. Bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear. Now, if there's anything that we're afraid of in Bloomington, it's a lifted up voice of a Christian. I mean, please. 
Christians, would you shut your mouths? Because if you open your mouth, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your degree. You're going to lose your respectability. You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your friendships. You're going to lose, lose, lose. And so everything in this community is perfectly designed to gag you as a Christian and never for you to lift up your voice. Now, what is a lifted up voice? Well, a lifted up voice today is something that's heinous. Nobody is supposed to lift up their voice unless it's at an IU basketball game or Colts. But no one is to lift up their voice proclaiming the authority of the living God. Nobody. For years, I was told by people they loved my preaching because I never altered the tone of my voice. They said, and they would say this again and again to me, that it sounded just like how I spoke in person. Well, here's an idea. If you're proclaiming to people God and his truth, you shouldn't be speaking conversationally. It's so stupid. Oh, but I was so proud of it. Oh, people liked it. Why? Well, because it had no authority, and people hate authority today, and so they liked the fact that when I spoke, I never spoke with authority. And does that sound like postmodern men? Yeah, absolutely. But here we're being told to have a certain tone, a certain zeal. And then I came into a church where, even though all the old people didn't like it, the musicians lifted up their voice and climbed the mountain. They began to turn up their amps. They began to really play the drums instead of putting in a plexiglass cage. And they were so embarrassingly simplistic with just like C and G and A. But of course, that was because none of them were real proper musicians. And there was nothing else they could do. And so I, I began to preach after the people that led us in our worship lifted up their voice, climbed the mountain and yelled at us, and there was no truce until we submitted. We lost a number of people from the church because of that. And I think, isn't that what young men are supposed to do? Aren't they supposed to have zeal? You say, well, yeah, zeal for football and zeal for the violin. I say, no, I'm talking men. Listen, guys, God commands you. You are the church, and he says, climb the mountain and yell. And that, you should not be afraid when you do it. And I can't think of anything that's more perfectly suited to a church in Bloomington than that. Don't be afraid. Comfort, comfort my people. The depressed, lift them up. The proud, bring them down. The crooked, make them straight. And then get up on a high mountain and say what? Well, say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. I was so discouraged this morning to read Franklin Graham talking about his father's imminent death. And for Franklin Graham, then in the article, they quoted Billy. 
And Billy's the same age of Mary Lee's mother. Billy Graham and Ruth Bell were all at Wheaton College with my parents and Mary Lee's parents. So they're family to us, right? And that Billy Graham was quoted as saying that we can have a relationship, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, comma, what? I believe. And that's the way you get, that's the way you silence your voice to postmoderns. You just say, well, my belief is. It just relativizes this thing. Listen, you are not to say I believe, ever. Don't ever say I believe. Because that's the way that you wink at everybody else and say that you're just a relativist like they are. What are you supposed to proclaim? What it says here is, say to the cities of Judah, here is my God. (laughs) No. It says, here is your God. And you say, well, this is the prophet speaking to the church, and so it's their God. And I'm telling you, no. You are to announce to the world. You remember Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all men. All right, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. Why? Because he's going to come, he's going to return, and he's going to judge us. And he's going to come with might. Now, what is might? With his arm ruling. Do you understand? This is the arm of God. This is what you are to proclaim. And you're not to proclaim it because you're 6'2". I was horrified to see this last week that there's only 3.9% of men who are 6'2 or bigger. And how many of them weigh 250? Listen, it has nothing to do with my size, my weight, my skin color. The power is not the man. The power is the God. And you, man, woman, child, older person, you are to proclaim, behold your God. Behold your God. So his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will bring reward, he will bring judgment. All right? And then this verse, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing. The word use up there is not in the Hebrew. It's just the nursing. And so this God who made the universe, who has commanded the church to climb a mountain and to to yell to proclaim, this God is the God who is a shepherd to his people, who gently leads the weak, the poor, the humble. And can you think of anything that's more intensely humble today than the nursing? And this is our God. And so, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Proclaim him. This is their God. This is not your belief. Behold your God. All right, let's pray.
Father, we pray that you will work in our hearts so that we will not be afraid, men, women, children, so that we will have faith. Father, would you use us as a bright light in this community, not a smoldering light, not a a wimpy light, but a bright light. Father, may we decrease and may you increase in this community, we pray in Jesus' name.